time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to episode 79 of the Feelin' Film podcast. For the second week in a row, we've got Replicant Fever, and are trying to answer that nagging question, do androids dream of electric sheep? It's Blade Runner 2049 time, and if this episode is anything like the film, you can expect it to be about 10 hours long. So buckle up. <laughs> I'm one of your co-hosts, Aaron, and with me as always is my best friend and I think a human, Patch. Hey, what's going on? And I guess we'll find out by the end of the episode whether that's true or not. Well, buddy, I, I am really excited to be having this conversation and kind of be embarking again on yet another week of Blade Runner talk. I am so glad that we did this last week as well with Mr. Harleman uh, as a guest. That was a great conversation and just being able to dive back into this, I guess now I have to call it a series, um, <laughs> is is going to be fun and I mean, it's going to be a stretch on the brain a little bit. So, you know, after after this, Patrick, I think you'll be able to probably go straight to bed because you will be so exhausted mentally. Well, <laughs> at least that's what I'm hoping. I was, yeah, it's something expected with the with the Denis Villeneuve production. It's bound to be a heavy man's thinking, slow burn type of thing that will have you ha have you scratching your head, but at the same time going, was that amazing? I don't know yet. Yeah, it's either that or you're going to not be able to sleep because you're going to be thinking too hard. And maybe you'll dream of toasted cheese, too, right? Toast <laughs> <laughs> I would love to dream of toasted cheese. That's a, that's a nice thing to think of. Well, before we get into Blade Runner, there are definitely some things that I want to talk about this week. So um, I, I'm going to let you start. Do you have anything you would like to talk about or mention from this previous week? What's been up? What's been going on? What you been up well, to? I got a phone call, not a phone call, an instant message, you know, the digital world that we live in. Nobody calls anybody these days uh, from our friend Chad Hopkins over at Cinescope. And he was um, pinging me and it's saying, hey, you like Clue, don't you? I said, you mean the Tron guy? Of course I do. He's a fantastic character. <laughs> a, I love that answer. Thank and he, after LOLing me a couple of times, he said, I'm referring to the uh, the board game turn movie. And I said, yeah, Absolutely. And he asked me if I would like to be on his next episode. And of course I said yes, because if there's one thing I love more than podcasting here at Feel and Film, it's guest starring on other podcasts with really great podcasters. So I did not hesitate. We just tried to pick out a time and, uh, and date, and we figured that was uh, going to happen pretty soon. So we set it up this week, uh, this last week, and I got a chance to talk about the um, really just kind of, I don't know how you'd call it, uh, a really great comedy known as Clue based on the, uh, the the classic. Actually, it was a classic UK board game before it became an American board game. And I had a blast just walking through the different characters and the, the, the plot and really being amazed not only with how, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, as an amateur filmmaker, I just, I'm, I'm amazed at how creators can take something from nothing and pique my interest. And so for a movie like Clue, I not only got a really great narrative, I mean, it didn't have to be deep, you know, Delanue style, but I got a very, it was a, it was a classic whodunit with a really nice balance of comedy. And in particular, I want to call out 
Tim Curry as um, just a fantastic master of comedy. I have seen him in a number of things, Rocky Horror Picture Show being the thing that I think made him pretty famous. Uh, Clue was kind of where I was introduced to him, but I've seen him in other quirky comedies. And of course, the, uh, the 1990 TV miniseries, It, as Pennywise. And in all those instances, including It, his comedy in is just on point, whether it's laugh out loud comedy, whether it's sinister comedy, his performance in Clue was one that just really stood out to me. And I really had a good time talking about it. If you guys want to check it out, you can check out cinescope.com. It's uh, Chad's latest episode. I don't remember which episode number it is, but you can always do a search for it depending on when you're listening to this. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a good time with it. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, it's always great to go on with Chad too, because he's, so detailed with his notes that it makes the experience of being a guest that much easier <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know he has a very specific format that you walk through on cinescope and so it it doesn't allow you to get lost as a guest you're always you're always aware of what the next topic's going to be and mm-hmm. so he does he does a great job of just just doing that with his format of having a, a new guest on every week and yeah that's that's awesome man i i haven't watched clue in i don't know decades Honestly, I, it's been. I guess I need to watch. I need to introduce it to my kids. Really, is yeah, it's really, really good. Introduce I, my kids to it. I think the the thing that made it really stand out to me. He said this at the beginning of his podcast is that it's it's one of those comedies that doesn't have to be raunchy to be funny. Mm, in that it that's rare it, these days. Well, yeah, it is, and I don't want to demean any. Well, I can't say demean raunch comedy. I don't like it personally, but I think that Clue represents along with movies like Blazing Saddles and those other Mel Brooks type films, it, it represents a style of comedy that feels very thought out. And when it goes on the screen, feels incredibly natural. Like, oh yeah, I could have made that joke. And when you start thinking about it, you're going, no, probably not. It just It's this kind of quiet um, brilliance that that movies like that really kind of call attention to. And it's one that I'm hopefully one day going to you know, introduce my now four and a half year old to once he once he gets old enough to understand um, good comedy and appreciate all that. So I'm hopeful that uh, that it still stands the test of time when he gets old enough to watch it. Yeah, for sure. I'm, it definitely puts it back on my radar. I'm going to I'm going to try and watch it here sometime soon. But there is a movie that I did take my kids to uh, this past week, and I want to talk about that for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> if if I'm you'll sure you allow do. me, I mean, anybody who's followed me on social media or who is part of the Feel and Film Facebook group will know that I saw My Little Pony uh, about a week ago. In Wait, event. the first time or second time? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw My Little Pony uh, about a week ago in an advanced screening. It's actually one of the weirdest experiences of my life because it was the first time I'd ever had my cell phone taken. And I thought to myself, this is wild. Like, not Star Wars. Not a superhero flick, not Pirates of the Caribbean, but My Little Pony. That's the one that they're worried about getting out early. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, okay, I didn't, I didn't get to uh, share it with the world in advance. But um, I, so I went into this movie, kind of just, I don't know, man. My daughter is a huge fan of the show. She is literally obsessively huge fan of the show. She recently came back from our vacation this summer 
and rewatched the entire series over the over the her last days of summer break. She just binged through seven seasons, and I think it's 163 episodes. And she's up to date. That's dedication. Um, and you know whether I liked the show or knew anything about it or not, I think it's awesome when she's that into something, right? Like she's got a passion, and she's very passionate about this. So. She was excited. Her best friend is also this passionate about it, so we brought her along uh, to go see the movie with us. And my expectations were simply that it was going to be okay. We were going to have fun, and I was going to enjoy watching her be happy more than I would ever enjoy this movie, because it's about ponies, and it's like got to be dumb, right? Well, fast forward to the movie, and oh my gosh, I walked out of it loving it. Uh, I was kind of blown away, to be honest. I I started to write my review about it, and I just, I I was constantly just kind of pausing and shaking my head and wondering to myself, what am I saying right now? But the fact is, I really, really, really enjoyed it. It starts off a little bit slow. Maybe the first 30, 45 minutes is kind of less, less awesome than the rest. But there is something so innocent and pure about this property and I, I started to understand why so many people, including grown men, seem to love it. Um, the characters are well drawn. For example, there, uh, there's more character depth in this than I think there is in Lego Ninjago. Uh, Lego Ninjago has a lead and like five or six uh, partner ninjas that are his team. And the only one you really get any kind of action from is the main guy. Well, in this one, you get action from a few others, and it's it's pretty exciting because you get to see some of their different personalities. Not all of them. I mean, there are too many of them, I think, to really give them all the spotlight, unfortunately. But I liked getting to know them. I enjoyed the story. I thought it was really sweet. Um, it's It didn't overly try too much to be modern there's like one or two modern jokes one of them which fails miserably in my opinion but other than that they didn't they didn't shoehorn that stuff in and it also features what i feel is like the best music of an animated film so far this year uh, as a whole i loved the soundtrack we got in the car on the way home and i immediately put it on and we started just singing it, and I've been listening to it ever since. I think several of the songs are legitimate, like, Broadway-quality songs. One by Emily Blunt's character, and one by Tay Diggs's character, specifically. And that captured it for me, because I love musicals. And I and I think, Patrick, you would like the music of this, even if you never watched the movie. You would, you would like the music. So... I ended up going to see it again. My daughter and I decided to have a daddy-daughter date uh, this weekend, and so we went together and we watched it again, and it was just as awesome. I really enjoy it. I don't know what else to say other than it's that's just how I feel. Um, I started watching the show. I'm about nine episodes in to season one, <laughs> and I love it. It's great. It's going to be my new background kind of like while I'm writing and while I'm you know just browsing the internet type show because it doesn't require my 100% full attention to stay on track with it. But it, man, they just, the messages being put out from the show are so good. Like they're, they're just good. Their friendship and their honesty and integrity and loyalty. And I think that that's needed in the world today. So I've is really that, are those, th- are those themes prevalent in the movie? Does yeah. it echo those things? Oh yeah. Because, because I, I was listening to your feeling it uh, the other the other day with uh, Mike, is it Mike from the Seattle 
Er, yeah, Michael. about yeah, about the Ninjago uh, Lego Ninjago movie. And I know you mentioned that the the things you enjoyed about the television show weren't as prevalent in the film, which was kind of a turnoff for you. And I think that's very cool that a movie doesn't have to capitalize on the property itself, that it can stay true to its TV show counterpart, which it sounds like the, I'm going to, the, the pony movie, <laughs> my little pony did. The other thing I was going to ask you is within the TV show, are there musical numbers? Does, does music play a, a big part in it or is it just more just animated action, things like that? I have been told that music will play a bigger part as it goes along. It's not super prevalent in the first nine episodes, but there are, there are the, there is the occasional song. Okay. Um, but I'm excited to see what happens. The, the thing, the thing about the music, when I say Broadway level music is there's, there's those songs in there that are orchestral and have these, these great drum and bass lines to them that are not what I wrote in my review as popified. Um, mm -hmm. and this has a popified, you know, song to it at the end as well. Um, and I fully expect that, that it's going to probably be the one that they nominate for an Oscar from this movie instead of the more Broadway like number that I, I really love and I yeah. hope gets a nomination. Um, but this is my second favorite animated film of the year right now behind Lego Batman movie. And so that means it's beating Pixar's cars. It's beating Captain Underpants. Um, it's beating Lego Ninjago. And these are, this is not something I expected to happen. So, um, it's good for, good for the family. I've, I've watched the Brony documentary even this weekend and tried to figure out like, am I okay for feeling the way I do? And I really, I really am okay with it, man. I'm, I am confident in my own skin. I think the thing that people need to embrace is like what you like and be okay with it. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, be more okay with it. Enjoy it. Enjoy what you like. Um, and that will lead me to say that I have no apologies, even if you're going to ring the shame bell about looking forward to seeing Jumanji out of the jungle. Okay. Oh, so we got to get that. We got to get the shame bell. No, not for this and not for anything. <laughs> There's no shame on this show. You gory. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> What about uh, anything else going on is, or has uh, My Little Pony been the the love of your life the last couple of weeks? I'm not going to go too detailed into this with specific movies, but I wanted to just mention I also I realized about halfway through this week that I had watched four war movies in a row, consecutive days. And I noticed people doing this 31 Days of Horror challenge where they were watching a horror movie every single day of the month of October kind of as a Halloween-y type celebration, which makes a lot of sense and sounded like a lot of... <laughs> whatever. That's what I am, a halloween, -y, halloween -y. Popify, these are my words. <laughs> but it sounded like a lot of fun to me, and I decided I was going to just go ahead and do it with war movies because I figured war is hell anyway. And what I did is I posted it on our Facebook group, and I ended up getting over 300 comments on this thread with incredible recommendations from all these different listeners. It was awesome, to be honest. It was awesome. To, to have that thread and all of those recommendations in one place. And I created a list of 26 was the number at the time uh, that I needed to add to finish out the month. And I've just been plowing through those one a day. I'm, I'm still on, on pace right now. And it has been incredible. I've tried to add different types of war films. Um, so some of them kind of have war as a backdrop more than focusing on battles. Some of them are not just, there's a bunch of world war two. Cause I think that's the most prevalent but I've tried to find Vietnam ones. I've tried to find, you know, Korean War or World War One or obscure things like and there's one about an Irish uh, battalion and, and something that happens in Africa. So 
things like that to kind of expand a little bit on what I'm watching. And it's just been, it's been awesome so far. And, you know, anybody wants to follow me or follow it along can, you know, follow me on Facebook or, uh, in the Facebook group, I've been posting about it as well, but it's, it's, it's neat. Very cool, man. Yeah. I saw the, uh, the thread blow up like a, well, like a bomb. And, um, I was excited to see what you finally picked. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I know that, I know that Ken Burns Civil War, I knew it was not going to make the cut because it's incredibly long. It did originally and until I, I yeah, no, I, 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 <laughs> I threw that on there with no hope of knowing that you would see that, but at least putting a bug in your ear or at least in your eye to say, Hey, this is something worth checking out because while base his, his baseball documentary is my favorite mm-hmm. civil war is probably his best. And at least the one that he's known the most for. So I, I would say if anybody's going to get introduced to Ken Burns, start with civil war and then immediately go into baseball because you know, baseball Ray, you know, awesome. Well, I will probably do that. Hey, the last thing I just want to mention before we jump into the movie is we have a new Patreon subscriber this month. Uh, he jumped on board as part of, I, I believe, it seems like he jumped on board as part of our plan to do uh, an October Halloween-y movie. I'm going to say it again. And uh, that's Michael Castro. So I just wanted to say thank you, Michael. Welcome to the patron family. We you know, are extremely appreciative of all of your support um, and for what you guys do to help us keep the show going and even start looking ahead into better equipment. Things like being able to do these these live recordings more often and, you know, make sure that we're not <laughs> failing from a technical standpoint and pay so, for my, my facial hair trimmings, you know, the Patreon, you know, so that, we can you really get good. it. Yeah. Um, uh, mm-hmm, might take more money for mine. Um, <laughs> I also wanted to say congrats to our fantasy movie league summer, uh, season champion, Jacob Neff. He went... <laughs> okay. Sorry. He, he went back to back. Um, he's going back to back. He went back to back in spring and summer and has won the league twice now. Um, so I think somebody's probably going to dethrone him this, this, this fall season. It's been crazy. And I mean, it's my worst one in my history of playing the game, but he will receive a Fandango gift card and some stickers courtesy of us as a, as a thank you for playing and, you know, as a victory celebration, it's no cost to join that. If you guys are interested, come again, join the Facebook group because that's where all this stuff gets put out. This fantasy movie league is basically like fantasy football or fantasy basketball or whatever fantasy sport you like. Only movies. You're you're creating a cineplex each week and competing for the biggest box office. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's a challenge, I will say, but it is a lot of fun and it's free. And people like to talk about it in our Facebook group and banter with each other. And you can win cool free stuff like Jacob does. So please come join us if you wish. Yes, absolutely. All right, man. Well, it's time to move along, and we'll give our quick spoiler warning, first and foremost, that we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie. So, Denis Villeneuve, you can just shove it. Um, it Denis Whoa! Villeneuve, no. <laughs> we just lost a subscriber. <laughs> oh, Denis no longer listening. He came <laughs> on when we did Arrival. You know, he arrived with Arrival, and now he's leaving uh, with um, I'm, I jest because uh, at our critics screenings all across the the country, when this movie was played for us, there's a letter that Denis actually wrote us, uh, and it has a bullet pointed list of things we couldn't talk about in our review, and it just made us all laugh because it was basically the entire plot that we couldn't talk about, and <laughs> I joke I, I joke about it because I'm actually extremely happy that that happened, and it, for once, 
I am super glad that they didn't let this movie get spoiled for me um, and for many, many, many uh, film goers because it is it was a big there was a big reveal pretty quick and I was able to experience that. I'm sure you were too mm-hmm. and, and be surprised. And so um, I think Hollywood actually caring about not having spoilers for their films is important. And I thought that was neat. Yeah. But Blade Runner 2049 is upon us and it combines the incredible talents of director Denis Villeneuve, as we mentioned, the great cinematographer, Roger Deakins, the composer Hans Zimmer, and it has original Blade Runner scribe Hampton Fancher as well. And then, of course, there's the cast of Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, Jared Leto, Robin Wright, and more. This, folks, is what you call an A-team when it comes to putting a movie together. So my first question, Patrick, is to get your initial reaction, is to say, did it work for you? Um, it worked for me the way Arrival did in some ways, in that I walked away kind of feeling a little, not confused, but just kind of, hmm, contemplative, which should not surprise me with, with Villeneuve stuff. And much like Dunkirk, I walked away going, did I really enjoy that? Or did I miss something that I should have gotten? And um, my initial reaction was, that was okay. And I wasn't disappointed with that reaction because my expectations were probably different than a lot of people, much like you and James, guys that have elevated the original film to, you know, your top 10 or number one of all time for someone like me, who's really just coming to the, to the party now and getting experience and appreciating it for what it was back in 82, seeing this movie as an extension of that, my expectations, I guess you could say they were met, but because they weren't very high to begin with, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. So for me, it was definitely entertaining in a lot of spots. There were spots that seemed to kind of drag a little bit. There were there were great character performances, things that I emotionally gravitated towards, and then there were others that turned me off. So it was a mixed bag for me, and I I'm okay with that. I I, I want I want to be okay with that because it was a movie that I enjoyed watching. Um. Would I go back and see it if given the reason why? Yes. It's not one that I'm compelled to go see again. There's nothing necessarily about it that makes me go, you know what? I really need to experience this moment again. I need to think about this particular scene a little bit longer by being in it. And it was just one that um, mm-hmm. probably a year from now, I'm going to check out again Interesting. Okay. And and bring myself back to a place where I have kind of a fresh set of eyes i'm i'm not necessarily surrounded for the you know i'm not building this up for the show and i'm not um making making strides to go see it at a particular time of day just because you know my wife wasn't really interested and i had to kind of carve out time for that so for me it was good not great that doesn't mean it can't get great with with another viewing but right now i'm I'm sitting at a good so about a three star for me that's fair that's fair um i was sitting at a three and a half star and I say was um, kind of a spoiler alert to where I'm going to go with this, but I will say that I want to start this conversation off by talking a little bit about expectations and 
The reason is because when, as you mentioned, this is a top 10 film of all time for me. It's number four on my, my list. And that's, that's pretty, that's pretty. The pretty original cool. is the original. The ori- I'm sorry. Yes. The original is number four on my list. So <laughs> having recently talked about that, uh, on podcasts and having rewatched it. So, so recently I went into this movie with what I will say is unrealistic expectations. Um, honestly, I felt like if I didn't love this movie, if I didn't come out of this movie thinking it was the best movie of the year, then I was going to be disappointed. If I just liked it, then that that means it's a failure. And that that stinks. That's a terrible feeling. And this is this is largely on me, but I I can guarantee you I am not the only moviegoer out there that has this happen to them. Where something is so especially when it comes to sequels, right? And franchises where you have a property that you care so much about that you want the next one to succeed, but you just, you can't help it. Like you have this level of, of, of high expectation for it. And so for me, it's like the, it's like the opposite of what happened with my little pony. I went and saw my little pony and I had no expectations. I was like, this is going to be awful. Right. And then I was blown away by it. So then my excitement for that film feels like it's, it's blown up because I, I had this, it's like, it's like my experience is relative to my expectations. Does that make sense? So they're they're always tied together. I Mm -hmm. fully believe. And with Blade Runner, it, it just didn't work for me. Um, I had, I went, I worked for four hours in the morning. I went and saw this at like 10 o'clock AM. So I had to leave work, get over the, get over to where the screening was, see the movie. And then I had to leave the screening and go back to work. So I fully believe I was not in the right headspace to consume the movie at the time that I did. I just, I wasn't ready. And because of that, I had a lot of problems with it. And I, well, I take that back. I had a big problem with it. And that was that I didn't connect with it emotionally. Hmm. Um, I actually wrote this in my review and, and was talking about how, it felt too cold and too distant and that it didn't go as deep into the themes as the original Blade Runner. And I read back on my review today after having just gone and seen the movie for a second time, Patrick, this afternoon, and I'm going to have to go amend it. I'm not going to change it, but I'm going to, I'm going to write something below it <laughs> because when I saw the movie for the second time today, it was like I watched an entirely different film. I kid you not. It, it was the experience was that um, that I expected to have the first time. It was amazing. It was everything I wanted it to be and more. Every little minor nitpick that I could find was pretty much just washed away. I absolutely embraced that viewing that I had today, and it was it was wonderful. It was just super for me. And I think that that happened because I was divorced from the expectations and I was able to see this movie and judge it on its own merit. I wasn't going into it expecting, Hey, this is going to be the same style as Blade Runner uh, original. i also, th- I also think that in a way that my not watching trailers, I, 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 this was the one movie all year that I have not watched a trailer for before it, before it aired. I think that backfired to be honest, because I wanted to walk right back into Blade Runner's world. And that's not, that's not 2049. It's not, it's not the 2019 of Blade Runner. It's different. Um, like aesthetically, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. it, I think all of those things combined to just 
not let me have that great first experience. And I don't know what the answer is uh, to solving that problem. <laughs> and if, you know, if anyone listening has an answer for that, feel free to share it because I would love to know. But do you have that same problem, Patrick, ever? Um, absolutely. I went to a midnight showing of Man of Steel. And I mean, at the time, and even now, I remember walking away even now thinking, man, I wanted that to be so much better than it was. I mean, it was the 75th anniversary of the character. He's my favorite. And you just, you, you want to cheer for that. You, you champion that you're like, he deserves a good movie. And even on the Lego Batman review that we were covering, I I remember saying it's, uh, I long for that Lego Batman Superman team up or whatever it is, because I want that same love for, for him several years removed from it. I went through kind of a, a process of going, I liked it, man, it had so many problems. What's Zack Snyder doing to my Superman to No, this actually really was good because I have a better understanding of liking a movie and not loving it. And it's still being good to me. So man of steel with its issues still makes me happy when I watch it. And I still want to watch it multiple times so some of that's informed by the population of cinema lovers, you know, and surrounding yourself with people that enjoy what you enjoy. And so they kind of elevate your opinion or the opposite of that, detracting you, you know, separating yourself from those that don't share your opinion, which may or may not be a completely objective viewpoint. But the thing is, when it comes to art, like movies in particular, you can't have that objectivity all the time. Right. I mean, we talk about giving something a, a star rating. And I think we talked a few months ago about the fact that if you were to give a movie a five-star rating right now, I have a lot of doubt that you're ever going to lower that five-star rating at some point, as opposed to something that is a three and a half to four can always be elevated to a five based on your life circumstance or when you're watching it or why you're watching that particular movie. And so it doesn't devalue those star ratings. I mean, it still says you enjoyed this or you didn't or usually the reviews I think are the more objective or within that world of, of getting information, the more objective portion of your, of your rating. But a star rating is really more of a knee jerk reaction, even if it's done over the course of several days. So I think that it's, it's a tough question to answer, but I think it's one that really is less of an answer and more of just an ongoing discussion and asking the questions on why did you enjoy this so much or why didn't it work for you? And that's why I enjoy our conversations is when we look at a movie like mag seven or rogue one and we have disagreements or we have agreements about things, we can get that perspective from each other and we can appreciate the cinematic worldview of a film and why it worked for me. I can honestly say I enjoy Man of Steel more than most people because of the character that's being represented because I love Superman. Someone that loves Aquaman or Green Lantern or Wonder Woman who has no real interest in Superman is probably going to give it a lower rating. So I fully admit my bias in that regard. But at the end of the day, it's still my opinion. It's still my enjoyment. And I'm still going to love that. Just like My Little Pony. Love what you love. Like what you like. And and move on. Take the, you know, take the razzing and just embrace it. Because movies are made to be enjoyed. They're made to be entertainment first and everything else second. So if it took two viewings and not being connected to work or anything like that to get you to a place where you could really enjoy it, 
then fantastic. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say anything less or more about Denis Villeneuve and his creative team about the quality of the film. And we can break that down. But if, if your problem, if, if your issues with it and my issues with it were the same and we came out with different opinions, doesn't really matter. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I, I went and saw it again. I mean, I really am. I, I would have, I, I was, it was depressing to be honest when you, it meant so much to me. I was so excited about this movie before it came out that I was legitimately depressed. I was down uh, with my reaction to it. And I just, I couldn't, I could I felt like I couldn't live in that without seeing if it was legit or not. And I'm, oh man, I'm so glad. So one more question uh, before we get into the deep stuff. Did the film's length and pacing bother you? It did. Um, there were a lot of times where I felt like scenes were either somewhat unnecessary or they dragged a little bit. And again, having seen Arrival and knowing Villeneuve's style, this was kind of on par <laughs> with with his style. And for a for a movie universe like Blade Runner, it fit perfectly. But for me, I could have done with about. 20 to 30 minutes less movie to get me from point A to point B to point C. The scenes themselves, I think I really enjoyed, but there were some that just kind of felt like they were out of left field. And I was like, if we could have just cut that, if we could have not lingered as long here, I would have felt better as a, as a movie goer. I would have been, there were a couple of times legitimately, man, I kind of looked at my watch and I said, man, we've got like 30 minutes left. Okay. All right. Let's, and where are we going from here? Um, but yeah, so it, that was probably my biggest issue with it was the length and the pacing overall. Yeah. And I, you know, I felt a lot of that during the day when I went and saw it that first time. And I think knowing it's coming. So the second time around, I mean, it's, it's one thing to know that it's coming by seeing the time stamp on a, on the, you know, IMDB page, like, oh, it's going to be two hours and, and 45 minutes or whatever. But when you know how it's going to go pacing wise and you're ready for it, totally different experience. I wanted more. I could have lived in this world all day. I really could have. Now I do think that part of it body wise, like you need to be prepared. I don't think I'll ever watch this movie on a whim. I will always know that I'm going to watch this movie. It's much like when I watch Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit and I usually watch the trilogy I make a plan to do that. <laughs> you make a plan. You got to prepare yourself, get I yourself should... in a headspace, right? Well, I do. I take a day off work every year to watch the Lord of the Rings, but the trilogy, but like the reason is because I need to allot the time and be awake and be prepared and be ready for that. And so when I watch this movie in the future, that's probably what I'm going to do because I feel, I mean, there were tons of, there were people in the theater that just were yawning like loudly all throughout the movie. <laughs> constantly like and not just one couple but like multiple people and i i get it um but that's also a big part of why i now love the film i think um is that style of movie that he he made he mm -hmm. he trusted in his material and his ideas to be something that was worth thinking about and worth lingering in those moments. Um, right. And there were a lot of those moments. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times where I think that it could have also been trimmed. There's a scene particularly where uh, Kay is walking down. It's at the orphanage and he's walking down to the furnace and yeah. explore going to see if the horse is there. Dude, like 
just walk to the stupid furnace. Okay. Like (laughs) literally it took like maybe eight minutes to get down there. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's at least one other one that I, I can't recall exactly what it was, but there's, there's another one where we, Oh, it's him coming into the hotel. I mean, it's like every step he takes, we are just moving so slow and I, and I get why and I'm okay with it, but I understand also why that turned audiences or why it can turn audiences off. Yeah. And so I wonder how this is going to do because it's only projected to make, I don't know, a little over 30 million in its first weekend. And this is a movie that costs 150 plus, maybe 180. Um, scares me because this is the kind of film I want Hollywood to make. And we all talk about, Hey, we want this kind of movie. We want unique. We want cerebral. We want special. And then nobody goes to see it and it makes no money. And so this is why we have a dozen superhero movies in the next two years, Patrick. Well, <laughs> I have to agree with that. But the fact that you're using an IP uh, sequel to justify the, the answer that you're making. I mean, if this were a completely original property i would probably be like yeah absolutely aaron but the fact that this is a sequel to a a pretty uh, a pretty pretty famous franchise i'm not going to give you all the all the kudos there but i want to go back to what you mentioned about being in the right headspace and i was reminded of when i watched when i look at like television show lineups and how tv shows are kind of lined up on certain nights how you have one show that is a lead into another in order to keep a certain demographic. I think that same thing is applicable. I mean, you and I both went to go see this movie in the middle of the day, you know, between work hours. Like I did the exact same thing you did. I worked for a few hours, trekked over to, uh, to, to Little Rock about 20 or 30 minutes away, spent two hours, three, almost three hours at the theater. And then I came back uh, one. I didn't want to work anymore because I was like, well, phew, that just wore me out, you know, just driving and watching a movie. But there, there is some truth to the fact that you have to be able to, I mean, we were watching this for equal amounts of entertainment and the show. And so critical analysis, I, critical analysis. Yeah. yeah. Or emotional, you know, whatever the, you know, the stick of our show is most people are doing date nights. Most people are hanging out with their buddies and going to see, Friday night showings or, or Thursday night, you know, the double feature. So there is a, there is a genuine, whether it's an expectation headspace or just a genuine, are you not entertained headspace that does play a factor. And I fully admit that, that my day, my circumstances that day probably helped dictate a little bit of my movie going experience. Had this been more of a high octane Star Trek beyond type film, I probably would have had a better appreciation for it because that action and the the higher you know the the increased pacing and the just the 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 lar- the increased amounts of of energy would have made it feel better. So I almost want to experience it again, you know, watch it again just to kind of give myself a psychological test, you know, let me check this out on a Friday afternoon or on a Saturday evening or something like that. I don't necessarily have the time to do that, but it kind of gives me pause to say, you know, at some point when this thing releases on DVD, I'm going to give it another shot. And yes, I don't need the theater experience to to make it better. It's a great thing, uh, especially with everything cinematically that's going on with the with the the cinematography and the soundtrack and all that stuff. But I feel like I can appreciate it equally as much on my own 
in my living room and and get a better understanding of it. So it's definitely one that'll go on my list to 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 watch again to see if my mind has changed. Well, you know I'll be owning it day one, so we'll we'll have it. <laughs> there's nothing to worry about that. And I'm super excited to see if there's a director's cut that's even longer. Um, oh like gosh! I said, like I know, I know, I don't care. I would. I'm telling you, man. I I want to go see it again immediately. I I need to make a trek probably to see it at the biggest screen we have here in Seattle at some point while it's still playing because it's it's that it's that good for me now. I mean it it is wild. The difference in experiences I had are so polar opposites. I've never I've never had this experience before, especially not well, at least not for a movie that's this hyped and within like a 4-day period where it just completely like almost not 180 because I liked it the first time, but all those problems just faded away. So can I ask the question that I think our listeners are really thinking about is uh, it a, is it a five-star movie for you so here's the thing i'm in the i'm really and i'm on, sorry that's the wrong answer we'll need to no go ahead i'm sorry i am really working hard to kind of relook at my five star and four star four and a half star ratings as i um as i take this film criticism thing more seriously to be honest as as being a member of the seattle film critics society there is a is a little not a pressure, but there there's a little bit more responsibility I feel that I have to really know why I'm rating things the way I'm rating and to be um, not to be wishy washy on them, right? And to not to not overrate something that I just really liked, but that doesn't really need to be there. And so I'm I'm still trying to figure that that out for me. Um, and so I'm not gi- I'm not going to be giving many five star reviews unless I've seen a movie at least twice. I, I really think that that's almost ninety nine percent of the time it's going to be a rule for me because I've found there's such a variance in that second viewing, and if it can affect me that same way more than once, then that to me is what five stars is all about. Whether it's emotionally or you know masterpiece level techni- technicality, even if I don't respond to it as well. All that being said, yeah, I'm leaning toward five on this one. I really am. I it, it, at this point, it's right up there in the conversation for best film of the year for me. Uh, the 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 experience I had today was phenomenal with it. I just I loved it. I loved everything about it. I really okay. did. Okay, um, so what did I like? What did I not like? Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. I know it's been forever, but we we need to get into themes and stuff. So, Rebel, <laughs> I'll tell you what I like the most. The best part of this movie to me, or the part that I resonated the most with overall, is the replicant and AI love story. Okay? So everything about the idea of one machine falling in love with another machine, essentially, um, was fascinating to me. Uh, it just... It, I, I mean, you have you have this, this genetically bioengineered human falling in love with a hologram. That's crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Like people will compare this to her, the Spike Jones film um, with Joaquin Phoenix from a few years ago. It was phenomenal and explored um, him falling in love with basically a Siri like AI or a Cortana like AI that was played by Scarlett Johansson. But that's a human falling in love with a computer program. This is a non-human falling in love with a computer program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's incredible because Joy as a character is the same for everyone. And, and and these are the little nuances I didn't pick up on the first time I watched the movie. This time around, noticing that 
even the girl at the end of the movie, the the one that's naked and does the cool little pointing thing, the gigantic hologram mm-hmm. with the pink hair or blue hair. I can't remember. I think it's blue hair. Looks a little anime. That, that's Joy. Yeah. It's a different version of Joy on a poster than we saw earlier in the movie when we saw Joy on the poster. And so you, mm-hmm. I started to realize Joy is their Siri or Cortana, right? Right. So everybody has the same basic joy so what makes his joy different at what point does it become you does she become unique enough that he falls in love with her and she falls in love with him i mean that that exploration and that relationship had me captivated i don't know about you but no i really enjoyed that portion and that subplot of the movie was exploring his relationship with her and beyond just the fact that they're both synthetic. They're both robotic. They're both non-human, I guess is the the best way to say it. But I know in some circles, as I've been you know, once, yeah, you know, I told you, and most people know I, I, I went dark essentially before watching this because I didn't want to get your reaction before I saw it uh, to manage my expectations and to kind of inform me. But I did, after watching it, start looking at other people's reviews and there were there were comments about the sexuality or the nudity and, and just kind of, you know, how much is in there and, and, you know, is it, is it more or less and, and that kind of thing. But it got me thinking about how you have this world, right. Of you have this, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it. You have this world of real people and replicants. Okay. So this is kind of the world to live in. And then you have these, these artificial things. And so, so, we, we see a world where nudity and sexuality is very prevalent. It's very much something that's, that's a, uh, you know, it's like a, it's, it's a product, you know, it's essentially a consumer product. And, you know, we see hints of that. We see kind of innuendo and all that throughout the movie with humans and, and whatever. But then there's that one scene with joy who uses, um, uh, I can't remember the, the character's name or even the actress's name, but she plays Cameron on halt and catch fire. <laughs> and she uses Are you about as, joy's actress's name. No, no, no joy. She brings in this, I guess this prostitute, oh, whatever. Oh, Mariette. I believe it's her name. Mariette yeah. or Marianne or something. And so we, we see other acts of sexuality hinted at, and there is even, you know, some full fledged nudity, but yet the one scene that could have had that, didn't right. didn't the one sex scene. I know. And, and, and what this tells me is that I think what Denis Villeneuve is doing here is he's really amplifying that that idea that you have these two non-human beings who are experiencing what is probably the most pure kind of intimacy, the idea of being known, the idea of of having someone that you come home to that is going to talk to you and encourage you. And, and it sounds cheesy, but cause I'm not describing it really well, but I think that he's really doing that intentionally to contrast it against this dark world where you have humans that are really just using other AI to kind of get their jollies. And I thought, how cool is that to be able to use non-human things to articulate what humans ultimately long for like genuine, honest intimacy. And the fact that he did it without necessarily exploiting the body, without exploiting and showing us things, he kind of let us kind of imagine if we wanted to. I thought that was very purposeful. 
And as a director, I think that it helped elevate that thing that you latched onto in a really, really great way. I did. I, I completely agree with you. I think that if that had been exploited for its nudity aspect, like, and, and as it gone overly, overtly sexual, um, it would have, it would have been a problem for me. It would have been, it would not have had the impact that it did emotionally because instead it was so much more about the, the, the feelings than it was about like the body. Right. And of course that's what she's doing. She wants to, she loves him so much and she wants to be able to give him something. She says at one point, she says, I want to be real for you. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went, Oh, I winced. Cause I was like, man, like that's, that's what every couple kind of goes through every, every couple in love, every husband and wife, you know, like they want to be real for each other. They want to be honest for each other. Um, and they want to give, they want to be sacrificial for each other. You know, if they, they truly love each other and they, these are, there are ways that she couldn't express that because she's not real. She's a hologram. Um, I, I found it incredibly interesting too, that Mariette, when she's leaving, and she she kind of gives her a child remark, and she says, um, "Oh, I I see." Or she's talking. I'm sorry. When when she meets Kay for the first time, and mm-hmm. she sees that he has the the emanate, emanator, I think is what it's called. Yeah. And she says, "Oh, I see. You don't like real girls." And I was just like, <laughs> "You're a freaking replicate! Like, what are you talking about?" Like that was there was an irony because even within the structure of this world, where mm-hmm. you have the hierarchy of human and replicant, you also now have a replicant that looks down on another AI. Mm. Like fascinating, right? So it's like, it's becoming this pyramid effect. Right. Um, it was also interesting to me. I picked up on the second time around. There's, there's one line when uh, Lieutenant Joshi is over at Kay's apartment and she's talking to him about what's, what's going on. And uh, she's having a drink. And at the end of this conversation, she says, what do you think happens if I finish this? And then it's a brief, brief pause. And then she just gets up and she's like, I got to go. And the, the, the context that I got out of that was what happens if I finish this bottle? Because she's mentioned earlier in that conversation. She's like, I like you, Kay. And we get this undertone of he's special to her. Right. And I, I really feel that she has developed some feelings for him. She is, she is emotionally or physically attracted to him even and she knows he's a replicant and that he is kind of her slave he works for her he's he's under her control but yet she's also intrigued and so there's there's this constant i don't know meshing it's, of it's, who you know likes who and what or what race essentially likes which race and um that part is compelling to me. Well, and the, the bigger picture of that is the ambiguity and the, the sense of muddying the social waters of being able to, it's this movie is less about identifying who are the replicants and who aren't, and really more about identifying what's real and what's not and using replicants and humans as sort of the outside example. But as you mentioned, even among replicants, there's a social status that you have some looking down on others. So, and that, I mean, I know it's less about being real and what's not, but that comes down to even valuing. So if, if being valued 
kind of equates to being real to someone like we have with Joy and Kay. You know, they value each other deeply and that value and that love must be real because of the fact that they both sense it. Then I think that's reflective of the rest of the world that Villeneuve has created in that he's saying we have these two races, but you can't physically tell who's who unless we give you hints. I want that. I want there to be muddy waters because I need to, and this is me putting words in his mouth, so I apologize. Um, But (laughs) I think that he is, I think he's trying to say it's important to not try to figure people out and try to make an assumption, but really about understanding who they are, which is, you know, this is going to, I mean, this is cliche, but people are more than the sum of their parts. And I think for replicants and humans alike, I think that's something that, that is prevalent in the first one. And I think that this movie, what it does well is it's a natural extension of that first movie. It's sort of taking those ideas and maybe amplifying them a little bit. Sometimes I feel like it was a little too much. Like he was taking a little bit too much from multiple subplots to try to tell that story. But overall, I think that he was doing a really great job of amplifying that theme. That is a perfect lead into what I was going to ask you next, which is um, about the extension of the world and specifically the main thematic idea that we're, we're dealing with in this version. Um, so the one thing I, I thought was not an extension is that the, the loss of the noir aspect of this, I think really affected that first viewing for me because I, I was, that's what Blade Runner is. Like Blade Runner, Blade Runner is the sci-fi noir. It's, it's its own thing. And so I thought that's what we're going to get. Of course. Duh. But that's not what we got at all. It's almost like the noir aspect's almost gone uh, completely. Um, and I had to kind of evaluate this expansion on its own um, as its own movie outside of the original. And when I did that, that's when I was able to really start to fall in love with it. Now, Okay, so it's right off the bat. We find out that, boom, K is a replicant. That was a shocker moment for me. I, I did not know that. <laughs> I don't think most people knew that was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's handled so flippantly in the movie. <laughs> you know, Sapper just says uh, something like, how does it feel to, like, kill your own kind or something like that? And you're just like, wait, wait, that means... It, it took me a second. I was like, oh, wait, oh, oh, that's what that means, right? Mm. Um. So then shortly after that, of course, we learn, boom, there's a baby and a pregnancy has happened. And so that's the main crux of the film. And that's the big idea that this one seems to latch onto. And this, I think that's the main theme, if there was one, that carries us through. And I felt like it was a natural progression of the story. I thought it made perfect sense, frankly. Um, what you essentially have here is two factions or two groups that want the same thing but for different reasons you have fresa and her rebellion of replicants that want this to be true they want they want they want birth to be able to be a thing because it means that they have a soul it's personal for them and it means that humans will have to recognize them and that you know there will be a reason to fight whereas wallace he wants this to be a thing too, because he wants more mass production. <laughs> you know, he wants a bigger slave force, as he he very overtly says. 
And I think that's fascinating that this this event, this in some ways immaculate conception, even though it's it's immaculate to me because you're talking about. Well, I, I, let me back up a second because there, there's a bigger elephant in the room or electric sheep in the room, if you will, and that is when it comes to this idea of birth from a replicant. We know Rachel is a replicant. It is confirmed 100% because we see a serial number on her bones. Okay? There is no question about that. I don't think we yet know if Deckard is a replicant. I, I feel like this film did a phenomenal job of not answering that question and leaving it ambiguous, and I don't know. And it, and it definitely affects the outcome of where we're headed. Because if he is a replicant, then we have two replicants that made a baby. Does that mean it has a soul? If two machines make another machine? But if he's human, that's a whole different set of circumstances. And the way that things kind of play out, they seem to believe that this baby has a soul because it was born, which to me would imply that Deckard must be human. I, what did you think about that? Well, let me first say that I really loved the baby aspect of it. I mean, I thought that was a fantastic plot device. However, the whole deal with uh, Wallace on one end and this like faction of people on the other, that felt not out of left field, but those were distractions to me. And I didn't, I didn't care for Leto's character. He felt a little bit like a combination of Dr. Evil meets um, uh, Ian Malcolm in the way that he was talking, you know, because it was like, I have my angels here and I want to tell you about them. And they're really great, Mr. Decker. I, I want you to meet your, your doppelganger double here. And I know she doesn't have green eyes, but that's okay. You know, I mean, it was entertaining. I mean, I, I really, I enjoyed Leto's presence on screen. But he was not. That was your worst impression ever, but it was hilarious. But that's what I hear when I hear his voice. I hear him saying, you know, my, you know every time he said my angels, I'm like, don't talk about your angels. You know, I get that. But I'm glad that he wasn't a major character in the film. But the other the other aspect of it, the faction just didn't I didn't latch on to that because it felt kind of like, oh, here we are. And now we're gone away. So while I do believe this sets up a fantastic idea for a third movie um i felt like it was a little thrown in and like okay let's get that ready that being said i i'm going to predict that if there is a third one i'm pretty confident there will be villeneuve is going to go with the <laughs> he's going to go with the replicant replicant baby because we've already seen this played out in battlestar galactica okay so i immediately thought of the same same thing. Yep. And it should, I mean, you should be thinking about that because when you talk about skin jobs and when you have Edward James almost, you know, reprising his role in this, I mean, you're, you're going to harken back to Battlestar. And I'd like to believe that there's a little bit of a hint at that. But from a storytelling standpoint, I absolutely think that it would be very cool to see two replicants have a baby because then it asked that first question does this child have a soul and is it, are there is it is it a real thing you know i think that that would be the the more curious question as well i really i really do i agree with you 
hundred percent there. And it, and that's another. I mean, I guess we're kind of not saving them for the end. That's another question I have for the sequels that that I honestly now want. Um, it, with if this team is in charge of it, I trust him. I trust Denis Villeneuve infinitely. Like there's there's nothing I would I can't not trust him at the, at this point. Um, so one of the things I would like to know is. Uh, when it comes to Doctor Anna, what's her? I don't know what her last name is. Oh, Sterile. it's Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> because she was no, oh, that's not cool. Oh, I can't remember her name. Her first this name is, is Anna. And, okay, uh, and I'm having a Rogue you know, One moment where I can't is, remember. Her name. Is she really immune, uh, or uh, does she really have a compromised immune system, or is she in the bubble? Was that part of the puzzle that they put together to keep her yeah. safe? Um, what happens? Can she get out of there? So that's a fascinating thing. W- one other interesting, one of the things that hung me up, honestly, the first time around, and I'm curious what your take on this is, when it comes to the idea of the birth, and it, it's such a big deal, Lieutenant Joshi says um, that this this world, the world is built on in a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall and you've bought a war. That's what she believes right Mm -hmm. so do you think that the movie did a good job of exploring the idea that this one piece of knowledge was going to quote unquote break the world we see that it affects that wallace cares and we see that fresa and her small rebellion care but on a bigger scale did we explore really what that means or do you think that was just kind of setting up more for the future I, I think it was really more of a philosophical statement than anything else because we don't we don't even hint at off world stuff at all. We don't get for all the visuals that we can we can praise and stuff like that. All we see is the city. At least that's what I saw. Now again, I didn't see. I mean, were they off world with Wallace? And I'm, I'm not sure. No, uh, and in fact, there's one point where he's he's trying to take Deckard off world, which is I was like, yes, we're gonna finally like we haven't gone off world yet mm-hmm. in a Blade Runner movie, so I feel like that may be the next jump as well as to take us off world. Yeah, so I, I think that it it was a nice philosophical statement, but I don't necessarily think it added, and I think that we didn't get enough visually to kind of support that statement. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what we have is an isolated area. We have the world. We don't have. We have the we we have the myth of offworld from the very beginning, from the first movie, and now from this one. And I think that was intentional because I think if he, if if he had included that in this movie, I think one it would have lengthened the film and it would have been distracting because having never seen offworld, I as an audience would have been more interested in that than in what was going on locally, or at least I would have been. My, my observations, my interest would have been split. So I'm glad he didn't. And so that statement really felt more like a, another nod to, hey, we're going to see that eventually. So the next one, next big te- theme that I really feels in throughout this one is the idea about, or the, the thought of memories and, and how they affect us, right? And that's a continued theme from the original Blade Runner. Um, you know, does a memory is a memory real does it what does it signify and joe goes so joe goes on this interesting journey i say joe k goes on this interesting journey um that is pretty powerful i think and it and it takes really living with that character in those slow moments 
Uh, and I think this is why a lot of audiences are not, a lot of audience members are not going to resonate and not be able to follow this very well because the movie, what the movie doesn't do is give you a ton of emoting from Ryan Gosling. I feel like he does a wonderful job in the role. I think there are several moments in this film where his facial expressions are just unbearably tragic to me. Um, there's one where he is, when he's going through the, uh, what's it called? Baseline test, the second baseline test. And you see his vein in his, his, uh, cheeks kind of pop out briefly and, and you see a lump in his throat very briefly. And you realize like, those are the signs. Those are telling you visually like, okay, he's off, right? He's going to be off on this one. Those kind of acting things I thought were awesome on his part. And so his character goes through this really unique process. He starts off believing he's a replicant. He then believes that he's a human. And then he has to come to the realization at the end that he is not born into the world by two loving parents, that he absolutely is a creation of humans to be a slave. And yet he still ends up sacrificing himself for the sake of someone else who may or may not be a replicant like himself. And that through line was so, so moving to me. Um, and I think it was shown to us multiple times because we had several characters where they said, I know what's real. And Gosling here, K ends up being wrong because when he goes, I think it's the memory scene. I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, where he says at the end of it, he's like, I know what's real. Mm, and then yeah. later in the film, we have Deckard when he's talking to Wallace. This is right before he brings Rachel out. And he says the same thing. He's like, no, because Wallace is trying to tell him, he's like, well, what if, what if everything was set up? And this blew my mind too, by the way, when Wallace is saying, well, what if, what if it was just a setup? What if, what if you were designed to meet Rachel at the right time because Tyrell knew he had developed a Nexus model that could conceive and mm. you were intentionally put in place so that you would connect with Rachel and you would conceive and have this child? I was like, oh, and, and it's also brilliant storytelling, by the way. The fact that they could come up with and write something that connective, connecting mm -hmm. to the old, the old film was blew my mind. But in that moment, Deckard says, I know what's real. And so we continually see characters in this series proclaiming this. Um, and I think it's, I think it's just an awesome journey to take in the movies because as an audience, we don't know what's real either. We go through the same emotional swings in this case as Kay does, because we feel at the same time he believes he's a replicant, we believe he's a replicant. Once right. he starts believing he's a human, we start believing he's a human. So then when he starts, when he realizes it, we realize it. We're in his shoes the whole time. And so we get to have that same emotional impact. Right. Um, yeah. I, he, I love that. Well, he's, he's a great unreliable narrator. This is one of those great storytelling devices that I am just a huge fan of. Chris Nolan perfects it in a lot of his films and, um, I think that Villeneuve does this with Gosling's performance. And that's one thing that really stood out to me is I, I you know, Gosling is a, is a, a nice close second in terms of my favorite actors behind Hugh Jackman, just in terms of actors that I adore watching. And in particular, you know, as a side note, 
when he goes off the chain about papyrus, the font and the SNL skit. I mean, that just kind of elevates him as far as just entertainment value for me. Oh, heck yeah. But, but I look at that and it harkens back to our discussion with James last week when we talked about the fact that what is real versus what's not real. And it sort of echoes into this idea of my truth is my truth and your truth is yours. And so truth is relative to the person and you have that kind of mental mentality that you're thinking through. And that's what these guys are dealing with. You know, Deckard, I think it's hilarious that Deckard at the end of that scene with Wallace says she had green eyes, you know, where he just basically saying you didn't get her right as, his, as a way of kind of convincing himself that, you know, this is, you know, I know what's real. And, you know, when you hear Kay say that, I look at that and I go, okay, so, so what's really happening here? And there's a little bit of just <laughs> delicious irony in the fact that memories and feelings that can change that are probably the most subjective things that we have as human beings are the things that in this movie define what's real to a person or I say a person and an entity. And in particularly, you know, Deckard and Kay, their realness is defined by something that is the most subjective thing within the human uh, persona. And I think Villeneuve is again, doing this intentionally to call attention to the fact that we are all unreliable when it comes to our own perspective and perceptions of things. I don't think he tries to answer the question, what can fix that? I think he just really amplifies that idea, which is nice because, again, another irony is that as human beings watching this movie, we are connected to other entities that are not. Uh, whether Deckard is or not, he's, his part is minor in terms of his screen time. Yeah. We spend most of our time with Gosling or with Kay, and he is, at the from the very beginning, he is... Being, being told, we're being told he is not human. Yet, by the end of the movie, we are connected to him as if he is, as if he is one of us, as if he is a friend because of all the decisions that he made because of the journey that he's been on. And what that tells me is two things. One, Gosling is, is a great actor. He can carry a human quality and a replicant identity in this in, in duality, which I think is that's a great performance. And at the same time, he convinces us to love him as a character, knowing full well that he's not a true human being. So it's less about being human and more about being, I don't know, insert word here. I don't know what the <laughs> word would be, but <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But, but I think that's, what's great about this movie is not that it just, calls us to ask questions and make us think about these things, but it does it in a way that really forces us to feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. Like we are feeling certain, some things oh, and yeah. we shouldn't feel those things. These are robots. And I, I actually think that, I think that in Deckard's case, I've, I felt like he has reached a place where he doesn't care. Um, even mm -hmm. if he says he knows what's real or not, the line that makes me think that, that he he's come to a place where it's like, you know what? It doesn't matter what anyone thinks because when Kay asks him about the dog, Oh, it's just a brilliant line. He says, is the, is, is he real? <laughs> and Deckard mm -hmm. says, I don't know. Ask him. Right. <laughs> and, and I just like that sums it all up right there. 
what does it matter if the dog is real or not? If the dog is, if the dog gives you the real experience and does it matter that I don't know or, or who cares whether I know or not what I am as long as I, it is right. It just, it is. And I just thought that that was a, a great line to put in there. And then in, in general, I think Harrison Ford was wonderful. I've read many people who talk about how they feel like in this renaissance of his career, kind of going back to older characters, not so much his return as Indy, but in the Star Wars movie and now this, like he seems to really be embracing that return. And man, I this was one of his best acting performances. I mean, yeah, it's a small, very nuanced, subtly kind of role, but I just I loved him every second he was on the screen in this. I thought he was he was more fleshed out and real to me, I think, in this short piece than he was in Blade Runner. And I love him in Blade Runner. Yeah. He was he was fine for me. I, I didn't he didn't blow my mind or anything, but I do agree that embracing his I say his age, his age in in acting, his acting age the roles that he's taken on as Han Solo and then it's Deckard. I mean, these are reprising roles where he gets to kind of play a slightly crotchety old man. That's been kind of, <laughs> he's just been through the ringer. I think that those characters lend themselves to where he is in his acting career. Um, he didn't, he didn't stand out to me, but that's not, that's not a detriment to him as a, as an actor or that he didn't, I think he was, I think he was just right for his portrayal as Decker here. I think even more so than, um, than Edward James Almos's role. Like, I don't necessarily think that that was gonna, I don't think that scene really played much of a factor in the movie. I think it could have been done without it. I liked seeing it. It was a cameo. Yeah. It was a cameo. And he made an electric sheep. I mean, he made a origami sheep. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. And, but, um, I think I think Decker was necessary because he's the connective tissue between. Yeah. These, well, listen, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is that Villeneuve could have easily just said, "We're going to bring Deckard in because you know it's Harrison Ford and he's Deckard and he's the guy." So it's, I mean, he could have gone the opposite way and just made this whole thing all about Deckard. Right. It's nice that if you're going to use him, you use him in an, in a way that matters. Yeah. And not in a way that's just using literally using or trying to bank off of the past. Yeah. So um, let's talk a minute about Wallace as a villain. What do you, (laughs) so you already mentioned that you don't really care for Jared Leto's portrayal. I will say that I am in the absolute opposite uh, camp than you on that. I love Wallace and and his portrayal of Wallace. I would have liked more of Wallace. I would have liked, something outside of the like two main big scenes we get with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I, I wanted more, I wanted more of him and I'm, that's why I'm hoping, you know, through a director's cut or, or eventual sequel or whatever that he continues on and there, his role grows, grows. But as an extension of Tyrell, if we're to be believed, and I already mentioned how this was kind of mind blowing to me that this idea of that Tyrell had discovered and created a way for there to be replicant, um, conception and then all that is lost when the blackout occurs and so we were kind of reset and Tyrell is now or 
sorry, Wallace has now bought up all of the Tyrell tech and all the Tyrell assets and is kind of expanding upon what Tyrell was doing. And he, he seems to want to just continue pushing that boundary forward. Do you think, do, do you get the sense that they are one and the same? Like from, you you watched it recently enough, I think we should be able to figure this out, or we, we should probably have an opinion at least, on whether what Tyrell's goals were are the same as what Wallace's goals are. Um, I don't know because I don't feel like apart from the short film with Wallace as the, as the centerpiece, we got much information. I mean, we got some backstory. We got a little bit of, and I'm appreciative of the short films. And I think that in the director's cut, they will probably obviously be on the disc. I don't know if they will be. I hope so. I, I don't know if they'll necessarily be you know intertwined a lot like Watchmen included the, uh, the animated cartoon of the, of the comic, but whatever. But I think for, the sake of the story, I, I can make an educated guess and say yes. I think they were both sort of one and the same. Just again, like Blade Runner as a whole, or 2049 was an extension, a logical extension of the original. I think Wallace as a character is a logical extension of Tyrell. And I, I liked Leto's performance in terms of if I'd seen more of him, if he was the main guy instead of his assistant. Love. I, love, yeah, I guess that's her name. Um, Louvre, love. I think it's love. I think he would have grown on me. Mm-hmm. But I kind of felt cheated, uh, a lot like Dave Batista's character, where he's in there for 10 minutes and then he's gone. And again, we get a short film of him. And so we're getting this nice little tease. I appreciate short films. I appreciate the fact that they're calling attention to these characters that, you know, after watching the movie, you're going, oh, they didn't get a lot of a lot of screen time, a lot of a lot of backstory. But at the same time, I feel like I like Leto. I mean, I do like Jared Leto as an actor. I think him being a, a method actor, character actor, I can't remember the exact term for it. I think if given enough lines, if given enough screen time, he would have grown on me. That character was he was just enough to kind of annoy me. Um, and, and not enough to get me to appreciate him. And I think when you contrast that with love, who I didn't really like at all, who I felt like was kind of <sighs> cheap to me. I mean, she had some interesting lines, but I felt like she was more of a, yeah, ah, kind of villain, you know, especially with her, you know, thank you. We hope you appreciated our product. And then she steps on. I mean, a lot of what she did felt very much cliche in terms of what a villain who, you know, is going to get her just desserts would do. You contrast that with Wallace, who I feel like is, potentially an interesting character that we don't get enough of. And I think that's where my issue was with him. And so when you don't see enough of them, I don't get to appreciate all of them. So I kind of fall back to the, I'm going to just make fun of his voice. And then you have love who is kind of like a character that had more screen time than I wanted. And she kind of becomes that flat villain. I'm like, eh, come on. So yeah, but to answer your question, yes, I do think they're kind of one and the same. Sorry. So I do, I do too. I mean, I think, I think that Wallace wants to control them more than Tyrell, maybe. Like, Tyrell genuinely wanted to create a a race of beings that could be hopeful, whereas I think Wallace wants to... He really embraces, like, being their god, even though Tyrell, mm-hmm. to some extent, he plays the role of their god, but I think that... I don't know. I feel like Wallace is more power-hungry. He's, um, he's arrogant. I mean, his arrogance is what, car- is what carries him. Yeah, so... Um, when it comes to, I, I enjoyed him, but again, I, I, like you, wanted more fleshed out screen time from him. Um, I'm expecting if there's a sequel that he'll be 
he'll be there and it'll be more of him as well. Now, when it comes to love, that was one of the things that on second viewing really came around for me. There is an aspect of her character that is very strong and it is shown throughout the film in many, many, many subtle ways. And that is her envy of real relationships. Hmm. She very clearly does not like the fact that Wallace continues to make new models and upgrades. She's the cream of the crop and she knows that right now, but she lives in this understanding that she will be out designed at some point. She will be outdated. And I, I felt like that was something her character was routinely showing me in, in little subtle nuanced ways. There's a moment where she, she sheds a tear when she's killing Lieutenant Joshi. And so I feel like there's, there, she just, she, she has envy. She, she, there's a Lieutenant Joshi cares about Kay. She's protecting him. And I think she's envious of that. I think that she's envious of his relationship with um, Joy. And that's part of why she wants to step on the Emanator and, and break it. Right. Because yeah. she doesn't want him to have that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't think that they deserve that. Yeah. Even though it's kind of a cheesy line, you know, she, she, she does give a cheesy line. Yeah. But um, you're, I mean, but you're making me come around to, I mean, I didn't really kind of pick up on all those things now that you said it. And, and, and that kind of makes me appreciate her a little bit more. I feel like at the very end, I, I didn't, I don't know. There was just not care about her death as a villain because that's, I think that's, for me, it was a little yeah. anticlimactic. With yeah, her. I think so. Yeah, and, and again, maybe it's just the juxtaposition of having such a dominant figure like Wallace, who doesn't have much screen time intermixed. Like, I feel like you could have done great with one or the other. And I don't know that Villeneuve felt like both of them. They didn't necessarily complement each other. I felt like they were they were really contrasted with one another in terms of being like, well, who's in charge here, and who's really the and, and, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's the fact that he's challenging us by saying, this is not your typical villain. You can't have just one bad guy. Maybe there's two. And the fact that we get Wallace, who is not dead, at least not that I remember, we have maybe more of an opportunity to see his character flesh out. So maybe I, I'm going to I'm gonna take the cheap way out and say, yes, her death was kind of dumb. <laughs> but Fair enough. Fair enough. Um so there was one other character that I wanted to mention because I was just kind of mesmerized, to be honest. I have like these little heart icons coming out of my eyes right now. Um, for Anna de Armas is her name. She's the actress who played Joy. I had never seen her in anything before, and I want to see her more. <laughs> I can tell you that. I, I thought she was wonderful in that role, and... I don't know. I just, not only is she beautiful, but the way that she was able to display emotion, I bought hook, line, and sinker that she was that hologram and that program. Didn't ever question it one bit. Yeah. I think she's up there with Blake Lively in terms of her elegance as an actress. I need to see her in more things to maybe justify her as you know, from a performance standpoint, but I was, I was enraptured by her, just her physical beauty. And again, it really made me appreciate the fact that Villeneuve didn't go exploitative with her 
in that intimate scene with Kay because I, I would have felt like, oh my gosh, you're ruining a beautiful character by doing that. You're cre- like everything about her was very, um, it was sensual, but it was sensual in a very innocent way. Uh, from the moment that we that we we see her come out of the kitchen and make him his like holographic steak dinner, and she's got that. I I, I love the fact that we we see her move from kind of like that fifties wife outfit to uh, more of a uh, more of a a, a track uh, a tracksuit kind of athletic type thing, and then we we see her emotions and her appreciations and all these things change with her wardrobe. And we get this this great kind of personality where she's kind of thinking about multiple things at once. She's like, oh, but we could do this and we could do that. And I think seeing her out in the rain with with Kay and getting a chance to appreciate, you know, being out there with him, uh, I loved that scene. I thought it was very, very cool to see how interconnected they were. And those 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 first scenes tended to sell me on the fact that their relationship was very much genuine. I don't want to say real because we've already kind of covered what's real and what's not. And we're still kind of living in that gray area. So I will say genuine. I think those first scenes really set up a sense of levity, some, uh, some intimacy and, and real genuineness. And I think her performance is what helped that. I wish I knew who made this connection. I can't recall, but someone said it felt, a lot like Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina and kind mm-hmm. of her breakout performance in the same vein as, as that. And I, I would have to wholeheartedly agree with that, um, at that comparison. So let's, let's talk about the technicals for a second, visual and music, Roger Deakins and Hans Zimmer it's taking us this long to get to them, but they are mind blowing. And whether or not that works for you or not, I'm curious about the music aspect. I'm pretty sure the visuals worked for you because I don't know how anyone could come away from this thinking it's not one of the best movies they've ever seen, <laughs> visually speaking. My question is, did you like the style and the aesthetic choices for this world and this story? Because I think it's undebatable that it is well done. And then what do you think about the music? I mean, we did get our we did get our wah moments. <laughs> Well, I, I did like the visuals a lot. It's a very beautiful film to to watch. I think it would be a nice little screensaver to have on my on my computer if those are still around to have just these flybys and stuff like that. I definitely think it's a nice upgrade. It's definitely a it definitely feels thirty years later in the city of uh, I guess it's Los Angeles still how it's it's that way. But I was having a conversation with uh, my friend Anthony about the music. And he's a composer. He did the music for our uh, our short film back in the summer. And I was telling him, I said, you know, I believe the Inception Bwomp is uh, now has a uh, is is going to have a run for its money because what I remember from this movie was you know these little long tones that I don't know that I would appreciate had I not seen Dunkirk. Okay. So first of all, let me just say this. Johan Johansson, I don't know if he gets any credit. I didn't stay long enough for the, for the credits, but I don't know if he got any credits for the music because he started out on this project and then Zimmer picked up on the, uh, 
on it. So I don't know what, if it was 50, 50, 10, 90, whatever, but I was talking to Anthony about it and I said, I don't know what to think about that. And he goes, you know, Hans Zimmer is in a really interesting place right now in his career. And he's doing what I'm calling like modern minimalism. And that's true where he's using more sound effects and less instruments to tell his story orally. All that being said, I thought just like Vangelis, Vangelis, the music in here, the sounds, the score worked perfectly for the the movie. Now, this this little criticism that I have may have been the theater that I was in, but there were times when the music overshadowed the dialogue. I couldn't hear some of the dialogue. So, and and this was different than like a Dunkirk where you were sort of kind of intentionally meant to not hear some of the dialogue. This felt like, whoa, 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 the music's too loud. Let's turn it down. I need to hear what they're saying. And that was probably my only beef with it. And there was a lot of rattling from the speakers. And so it was a very loud score, which I know was sort of reminiscent of what the original Blade Runner had. So I'm kind of mostly okay with it. But I think that when it interferes with dialogue and kind of distracts, that's kind of an issue with me. Right there with you. Um, I think I'm in lockstep with everything you just said. I liked it at times, but overall I did have some problems with it. And I thought that it overshadowed some key pieces of dialogue. Specifically, there's one that I still don't know what she said when love is when she thinks that she's killed Kay and she's going back to the shuttle. She says something, but there's so much loudness and noise that I, I mm-hmm. could not hear what it was that she was trying to say. Um, so that was that was kind of a a little bit of a an annoyance for me as well. And I would have liked to know what Johansson did as well. I mean, um, Don or Don Shanahan of Every Movie Has a Lesson, our contributor, was just pointing out in the chat that his score for Sicario is absolutely amazing, and I agree. And he also did a wonderful job last year with Arrival. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really crazy to me that this relationship that is lengthy, at least two films back got severed in such a huge way like what the mm-hmm. heck i i want to know how i'm ready for the making of like feature ed or the what's 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 that old series that did the story behind it was like uh how was it? it used to be vh1 movie. behind the music yeah behind the music i'm ready for the behind the movie uh, vh1 <laughs> episode on what the heck happened or i guess it could be behind the music actually that would fit <laughs> we, could, well, we just call it what the heck happened that's what we should call the show if we yeah. just make our own one right what That'd the heck awesome. happened <laughs> but i mean when you're talking those two that level of two composers johansson and zimmer i just that's a it's a wild situation mm-hmm. uh, but yeah for me it, it could have been better could have been better yeah um all right, wrapping it up before we hit our connecting points, we've talked kind of on and off a little bit throughout about sequel to this and what we thought might be the approach. Um, I think you had told me when we were talking that you felt that there were two really big loose ends. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think those are and where do you think we're going from here? Let's just say it that way. The the two loose ends were obviously the 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 faction of of replicants that sees this baby as a savior. And it's really exactly what you pointed out earlier. It's that and then Wallace's ambition to want to see this baby or whatever uh, become kind of his next generation of, of replicants. But as an extension of that, the, the more obvious one is what's going to happen with Deckard and his daughter? You know, what's that going to do is are we going to move another 30 years into the future? Is Deckard going to be dead? Is you know, what's going to happen there? 
And I think that those moments are what are going to be talked through and fleshed out in, you know, this third movie that we're, you and I think are both pretty confident is going to happen uh, unless this thing just completely tanks at the box office, but maybe even in spite of that. So those are kind of the loose ends that I'd like to see tied up or at least answered, even if they're not fully fleshed out in the next story, how do they, how do they factor in with each other? You know, I'd love to see a war between these replicant, this replicant group and Wallace's maybe his, he's got a great army and seeing them come together. And, but how do you fit, how do you fit Deckard and his daughter into that? So those are kind of my, my loose ends there. Yeah. I think, I'm fascinated to see both of those things. How does the whole conception storyline play out? Where do we go from here? And what I want to know what the impact on the world is. Like, what's the big impact? What's the bigger, broader effect that's going to happen here? Yeah. Um, so that that is absolutely fascinating to me, and and I I am I am in for a sequel for that reason alone, but also like you said, for that kind of more emotional and personal storyline of Deckard and his daughter and what happens with that. Um, I guess we'll see. I guess, I guess we'll find out and uh, well, maybe we'll find out if he's allowed to make another movie uh, in this series. But as, as a super fan of Blade Runner um, and now I can say as someone who is on board with this one, hundred percent. I will gladly take more uh, if it's made by this same team. If they try to pass it off and keep this thing going with different people, nope, don't want it. Can go away. But I trust this group um, and their storytelling ability. I think what we learned here is that Denis Villeneuve may be the biggest Blade Runner fan of all of us um, because he treated this material with such reverence and respect and did not he had such restraint to not go crazy and make this into an all-out war. I I really thought for a moment there at the end in that third act we were headed for some action where we were going to see this uprising of, of replicants, and I'm glad mm-hmm. that we did not go that route because that's not what Blade Runner is. And Don just mentioned in our chat room that if they passed it back to Ridley, yikes, and I would agree. I love Oh, Ridley was involved, by the way, and I think that's great. He was a producer. I believe he had a producer credit in this film, so he was involved – um, idea wise, he was there, and I think that's awesome. Leave him there. Don't don't let him run the project. <laughs> he can't be the one coming up with with the ideas anymore. He can he can help streamline and and make sure tweaks are there. But yeah, he he needs to stay away from being the man at this point. Okay, yeah. connecting points, Patrick. It is time for that big moment that we love and we like to talk about where. We, t- we discuss the one big thing that we resonated the most with, and I'm not even sure I know yet, so I'm going to let you go first. Okay. The, the movie itself was, I think, a tale of two halves for me, and it was tough to stay focused during the first half, but the moment that that changed for me was the scene involving Kay and Dr. Dr. Anna. I don't want to try to pronounce her last name, so we'll just call her Dr. Anna. Or who I think kind of looks like Ali Sheedy. That's just me. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. But, you know, of course, we find out later that she's Deckard's daughter. 
And for me, without even knowing that reveal, um, I got a very personal sense that this maker of memories has this deep connection with those things that she creates. And I love the artistry of that. I think it's fantastic. That whole exposition where she's explaining what she does and she's answering his questions as she's creating this birthday scene. I thought that was so very cool, very beautiful. And it's very much a, there's a genuine emotion that is attached to each one of these memories that creates. And it's even implied, or maybe it's even said that she's the best at making these because they are so genuine. Like you can't even tell that they're real or, or if they're real or not. So it made sense to me that she would get emotional looking at the memory that we see earlier in the film that, that, uh, that Kay recalls. And then to me, like her connection to it as a spectator was like, that was my emotional connection to it. Like when she was crying, I was kind of welling up. I was like, man, yeah, I'm kind of feeling that same emotional impact that she is just watching this because I felt that with, with him. But then the scenes elevated when we get that reveal later on that she's his daughter, that when they, that the baby actually was, the twins were swapped and she was actually he. And so the, the memory was actually hers. And now there's this incredible level of importance to it. And it's like this great foreshadowing and it gives like this weight at the end of the film. And so that last moment when, when Decker puts his hand up to the, to the glass, I thought was very, very cool. It was a great ending to, to the film. Um, lending itself to kind of open yourself up to, okay, what's going to happen next? And it causes us to ask those questions that we discussed tonight. And to me, I think that really amplifies that unreliable narrator. As an audience, I think we love reveals. And when you can create a reveal that elevates your emotional response to something, that's what I've felt. So you had this like double whammy, kind of like, I mean, I say kind of like in a, maybe a distant, similar way to you having that second viewing that was separated from expectation, separated from work. You went in and you were like, ah, that's what I wanted to feel. And I felt like when we got that reveal, it was like this kind of double scoop of ice cream. I was like, wow, I thought I was getting this emotional response, but I was really getting this and more. And, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed feeling connected to her and then feeling connected to her more deeply because of that reveal at the end. So that was also the moment that kind of ha had me perk up a little bit in my seat. And I was like, okay, where are we going to go from here? This is, this is pretty fantastic. And uh, it definitely got me through the rest of the movie and made it a lot more interesting. That's great, man. That is a, a phenomenal pick. I think it's a, it's very worthy um, for me on the first viewing. I actually found it difficult to pick out a single moment. I, I do not understand why I was so detached still fully, but I mean, I was just attached. Um, but on that second watch, I found it hard to choose one uh, because I was having so many different emotional connections with different characters. Kay and Deckard's fight leading up to them having a drink was one um, great moment. Great moment with Deckard just punch, punch, punch. And <laughs> Gosling just takes it and takes it and takes it and takes it. And finally, it's just like, can we stop? Can we, can we just not do this? Um, and a way that that, that scene plays out. I love, um, the one that you referenced, the one that you chose was in my short list as well. And particularly, I love that you brought it up from her perspective, from Anna's perspective, 
one of the things I really liked about it was Kay's perspective and the moment where he realizes that memory is real and he just, he has that raw outburst. It's like the only time we see it in the entire movie, but we see him freak out and just scream and rage and like understanding of what is happening, right? Or what he believes to be now real. And then uh, Joy sacrificing her immortality was another one that just absolutely gutted me when she says, take me with you because she knew that that was, that was risking the chance that she was going to be deleted essentially and not be able to continue her version of death. Um, she was safe forever if she was stayed in the program, but then, um, if she wills with him, obviously we see what happens. Um, she's no longer protected and her sac wanting to sacrifice of herself to go with him and, and put herself at risk was an, an act of love to me. That was the moment where I was like, okay, she loves him. Like the whole intimacy thing was one thing, but that one was really powerful. But the one where I actually shed a man tear this time around, and I, I think I will have more of those in future viewings, um, was when Kay was standing before Frieza, um, as she explains, you know, that she basically wants the same thing as Wallace, which is replicant babies, um, even though for different reasons. And as she's talking, she's using gender neutral speech at first and then eventually she starts referencing Anna as she and as an audience we all are paying attention to this and all of a sudden when she says she we connect the dots just like Kay does and it's all in his face you see that realization and it is heartbreaking it is so heartbreaking and the way that this plays out with her going up to him he drops his head in in sadness he doesn't know how to respond. Um, and she just walks up to him and she touches his face and she says, Oh, you thought it was you. And she's like, honey, we've, we've all, we all want it to be us. And for me, that was so heavy and it was just soul crushing. <laughs> I mean, I, I really, I wanted this to be real for him, for his character. I cared that much that I wanted him to be the, the human. Right, I wanted him, or the not human, but the the born one, the one with a soul. Um, and so he'd gone through this emotional ringer, and I would have I would have completely expected him to give up at that point and just quit. But yet he moves on from this moment, finding out this this awful truth that he really is just a robot, and he still makes that eventual choice to sacrifice himself so that Deckard and Anna can be free. And it all makes it that much more powerful and meaningful to me. And so that, that moment just gutted me. I mean, severely <laughs> this time around. And, and, and honestly, that was the moment where I probably put the little five-star ding on it and said, okay, this is, this is it. You, you've got me. This is, this is a near perfect film for me. Um, so yeah, that was, that was mine. I remember specifically thinking during that scene, those exact same thoughts that what a great kind of, exclamation point idea that he the villain puts in this film of what does it mean to think you're the chosen one and you're not that you're just normal you're just a regular i don't want to say person because that's not accurate but that is something that is prevalent in, in a good number of movies where the hero's quest can end with the fact that he's just a normal person and um, and I think that's very much something that 
a lot of audiences resonate with, not necessarily personally, but they they find a lot of entertainment value in that kind of twist, you know, that kind of thing, because it explores, well, what is my purpose then? What's the point of living? What's the point of being who I am? And it informs the rest of his actions as the movie goes on and eventually gets to its conclusion. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Well, we have done our our Blade Runner twenty forty nine uh, podcast justice, I think, and we've we've expanded our runtime just as as uh, Denis Villeneuve does. So <laughs> to compare to our our Blade Runner podcast timing, so I think we we've done a good job. Um, hey, we've even we've even upgraded the visuals uh, with with visual YouTube. Uh, live recording for this episode. So if you didn't know, I don't even know if we mentioned that at the beginning, but we were recording live this whole time on YouTube uh, as an experiment. We'll see what people thought of that and if that's something um, people, listeners, want going forward. But Patrick, let's wrap it up. Where can people find you if they would (laughs) like to continue the conversation with you further? Uh, You can find me at uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. And I'm usually hanging around the Facebook group. I'm not as active as my counterpart here, but I definitely like to uh, view the conversations and chime in whenever it feels applicable to me. So you can find me there. uh, But if you want to ask me questions specifically, just kind of at me and we can start a good conversation. Great. Yeah, that Facebook group is the place to go. We say it every episode and there's a reason for that. It continues to grow. Um, Let's let's add more people to that conversation because that's the best part of the show is taking it off of this and to there where more of us can have this bigger um, discussion about something or a movie. So next week it's inconceivable, but the princess bride is 30 years old. (laughs) We are going to celebrate one of our all time favorite movies um, by doing an episode on the princess bride. We may just have to quote, quote our way through the entire movie. um, But nonetheless, we will be talking about it. Um, you can also expect written reviews on the site next week for Happy Death Day and Marshall. Uh, so keep an eye out on feelinfilm.com or the social media feeds for those. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can find me everywhere at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, Twitter, Facebook, etc. And then also tweeting from the Feelin' Film Twitter account. But the best place is the Facebook group. Say it again. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on Blade Runner. Uh, we'd love to hear your connecting points. So there is always the episode uh, pinned to the top of the Facebook page group, Facebook group page. Sorry. Uh, so go there, drop your connecting point in there, and let us know what yours was. We'd we'd like to hear that. Until next time, Patrick. We like to make sure we remind everybody: stay positive and keep feeling film. Okay, we're done now. What do I-